Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Hey there, Airlines Confidential Confidantes. Ben Baldanza here, and glad you're here with us. And I'm Chris Chimes. Good to be back at the mic after a few weeks away. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the JD Power rankings for U.S. airports. But first, let's cover off some news. Ben, are you buckled up? Well, yes, I am. But Chris, you just got back from a long international trip. So any interesting or good airline stories you can share from that? Gladly, I have no good airline stories in that everything was smooth and on time and American Airlines took great care of me. So uh, I'm happy about that and had a great trip. So but thank you for asking. Oh, that's fantastic. I hope every airline customer has that experience. So let's Ex go. Exactly. Okay, so first up on the news front. In the worst kept secret in aviation this summer, United Airlines and Emirates announced a code-sharing partnership. And United said they'll start flights from Newark to Dubai next spring. Emirates CEO Tim Clark went so far as to speculate about a possible joint venture in the future. And with this announcement, Emirates is dropping its partnership with JetBlue. Meanwhile, Etihad is expanding its code share with American and announced plans to expand a partnership with JetBlue. So you got all that, Ben? It's a lot of change, but it just shows the importance that the Gulf region has become over the last decade or so with three important carriers that have really shifted a lot of the connecting traffic from the Americas into places like India, Central Asia, Africa, and more. Most of that traffic you know, decades ago connected through Heathrow or Frankfurt or maybe Paris. Now most of that traffic goes through the Gulf region. And so these alliances are really important. Emirates has not been part of one of the big three alliances. So the question is, I'm wondering whether this is a prelude to them becoming a formal Star Alliance partner at some point. Yeah, I think that that's probably in the works based on the conversations and the public comments. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that these airlines were mortal enemies and now they're cozy friends. Um, personally, I thought that the the fight that the U.S. carriers were waging was ill-conceived and kind of silly, and so did government authorities because they didn't win. So let's see where it goes. And like you said, I I don't think they're necessarily losers, but you know this certainly will continue to change the dynamics of transatlantic partnerships between U.S. carriers and their European partners because, again, more and more of that long-haul traffic might be going over Middle East 
and Gulf uh, airports versus Frankfurt or London. I think that's right. And I'm sure the United plan to fly Newark, Dubai was part of the whole decision to do this. Yet at the same time, United adding metal on a route that until they were partners would have directly conflicted with Emirates and cannibalized to some extent is a little bit surprising to me. It's surprising that Emirates would sort of welcome a Newark Dubai nonstop when they fly plenty of JFK Dubai and New York's an important city for them. On the other hand, Newark will provide a lot of connectivity because of the United Hub there. So maybe Emirates sees all of that net net as a positive. Well, if nothing else, Ben, this is a wake-up call to Schiphol and London Heathrow and Frankfurt <laughs> to get your acts together because this lousy summer cannot continue and there are other options that especially business travelers are going to be taking when you can't deliver service to your airlines. And then, Ben, while we've been focusing heavily on the return of business travel, some news from the cargo side of the business was a real buzzkill last week. FedEx posted some very disappointing numbers. Its stock plunged 21%, and then their outlook for the third quarter was pretty dismal. FedEx CEO Raj Subramanian concurred that the FedEx results pointed to strong signs of a looming recession, and all this led to the U.S. stock market having a very lousy day this past Friday, September 16th. It sure did, Chris. It was a terrible day for the stock market. And I think the news that FedEx put out certainly helped support that. I don't know that it's responsible for that. But I think FedEx warning is a big deal. If people are shipping less, and they specifically talked about weakness in Europe and Asia from the U.S., not only domestic U.S., I think that does suggest global slowdown, not only U.S. kind of slowdown. And on the return of business travel, that's clearly related to that. I know to many, I've been in my own buzzkill on saying that business travel is likely to sort of flatten out at something like 80% of 2019. And that's close to where we are right now, but there's lots of reasons to think it might not get any better than that in terms of volume for a while, even though as Delta and others have reported, they can make up some of that difference with higher fares too. Well, certainly the business of business logistics and getting uh, raw materials or finished products back and forth via what FedEx does in part of their line of business, you know, you're going to see that slowing down as the economy slows down. And, you know, then on the consumer side, you know, it seems like people are kind of trying to get back to the shop. I wouldn't say back to the shopping malls, but the online shopping seems to have slowed a bit as people want to get out. And whether it be an afternoon at the mall or whatever else, shopping in person. So, you know, I think that they're experiencing some slowdowns on all fronts. 
I think that's right. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. And if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. Ben, finally, on the aircraft front, Air India announced a fleet expansion plan that seems, I don't know, rather modest as compared to the previous speculation, uh, basically taking on 25 Airbus narrowbody 320 and 321neos and five Boeing 777s. Meanwhile, China is poised to certify the C919 from the state-owned aircraft manufacturing company in a direct shot at Boeing as well as Airbus, as it will compete with the with the uh, 737. And the Chinese announced sanctions against Boeing and Raytheon related to the U.S. position on Taiwan, although largely focused on the defense side. So not the most fabulous news for Boeing as it relates to the two most populous nations in the world. That's right. Let's talk about Air India first. I think your use of the word modest itself is modest (laughs) in the sense that I think Air India needs a lot more than this. Obviously, replacing some of their oldest narrow body planes that they fly within India and close to India, like the Middle East. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and such um, is is a good thing. But the five Boeing 777s, while those are going to be good planes for them, I'm sure, are a far stretch from what that airline needs to replace a very aging, long-haul, wide-body fleet. So my guess is that this is the start. And maybe as the Tata Group who bought Air India, figures out what they do with Air India and Vistara within India and AirAsia India within India, figure out sort of what they have in terms of fleet and needs and competitive backup and such. Um, They'll figure this out a little more, but if Air India is going to sort of be the long haul carrier for that group, they're clearly going to need more than those five Boeing 777s, but maybe that's an order that's coming soon. As far as China certifying the C919, that's the biggest non-news in the world, right, in the sense that it was clear that was coming. And the reality is China's just become a major manufacturer of everything. My wife has this little game that she plays called What's Not from China, meaning that every time we open an Amazon box, she looks where was the item inside manufactured. And more often than not, it's in China. And we just kind of laugh about that. But the point is, 
I think the world needs to expect that China is going to become a major manufacturer of commercial airplanes. Maybe for the next decade or so, that will be slow to develop and those planes will fly mostly in China. But over time, they're good at figuring things out. And my guess is, you know, 20, 30 years from now, as we think about commercial airplanes, we won't only be talking Boeing and Airbus, we'll be talking Boeing, Airbus, and the Chinese industry. Yeah, that's very fair. And if aviation is going to grow like um, most expect, we probably need a third manufacturer. We need more competition to keep Airbus and Boeing on their toes. So I think that those are all valid points. As I was reading the headlines this week, it just underscored, you know, Boeing, along with everything else they've got to overcome, they're going to have the geopolitical issues that perhaps Airbus doesn't have to battle as much with regard to being an American company and being on the defense of uh, a little bit more in China, in India a bit. Um, and that's just the reality of the marketplace. So hopefully they're up for the fight. I think that's right. And as many of our listeners know, I'm sure, Airbus has been assembling the A320 inside China at an assembly facility that they opened there many years ago, largely to serve the Chinese market. So as China builds its own industry, the question is, will that become difficult for Airbus or will they partner with Airbus and become collectively a bigger threat to Boeing? Or it's just interesting to see how that world is going to shape up over time. Well, coming up, J.D. Power rankings for U.S. airports, hot off the presses with our guest, Jonathan Sutter. We'll be right back. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Let's welcome back Jonathan Sutter from J.D. Power. Jonathan, a few months back, we had a great discussion about the J.D. Power Airline Awards and how these are determined. What's new with you and in the J.D. Power world since then? Well, thank you so much, uh, Ben and Chris, for having me on the podcast. Uh, avid listener to the podcast, absolutely love it. We've had a, a tremendous amount of activity and uh, quite busy. Uh, as I mentioned in the prior podcast, I manage our relationships throughout the travel vertical, which includes airlines, airports, hotels, and car rental companies, as well as some other um, some other work that we do. Um, and you've been quite active uh, within the time since the last podcast, you know, we published the airline study, which we discussed on the last podcast. We published the hotel study, and we've been engaging with a number of hotel brands. And uh, contemporaneous with the publish of this podcast on Wednesday, September 21st, we will be publishing the airport study. So that's been keeping us quite busy as we finalize the results and, and, and uh, publish those results out to the airport community and the travel community more broadly. So tell us about the airport award category, the airports that are included, how it's structured, and the scope of the study. Absolutely. So we have three categories of airports based on the size of those airports. We have mega, large, and medium-sized airports. So mega airports have 33 million or more passengers annually. Large airports have between 10 and 33 million passengers annually. 
and medium-sized airports have below 10 million passengers annually. Those three categories, uh, we run a regression-based analysis, which are based on six factors that we use. That's actually, the six factors are for OND passengers in the mega category. We also have a separate model for connecting passengers because so many of those airports are, are connecting hubs. But for OND passengers, the factors are airport accessibility, uh, which is getting to and leaving the airport, check-in and baggage check, security, F&B and retail facilities, you know, lounges, signage, restrooms, gate areas, concourses, and then baggage claim. And so we use a regression-based modeling to figure out what's most important to passengers and come up with a, a, an overall satisfaction score, normalized score between 100 and 1,000, 1,000 being the theoretical best possible airport and 100 being the theoretical worst possible airport. Airports don't score you know, 100 or 1,000. They score somewhere in between. And we look at the um, satisfaction levels based on that scoring within each of those three categories. Well, I've been to at least one airport that I might give 100 to, but we'll save that for another show. <laughs> Jonathan, what are the big trends you've seen as far as how consumers view airports over the last year? And how do you measure these trends? Absolutely. So the data is telling us overall satisfaction is down. We see a meaningful decrease between study year 2021 and study year 2022. So to give um, context for the dates, uh, study year 2022 was fielded from August of 2021 through July of 2022. Uh, we see overall satisfaction being down um, within each of the three categories I mentioned before. So mega, large, and medium-sized airports that are all down. We've seen a number of reasons for that satisfaction level decline. Um, one of, I, I think the overarching consideration is crowding in the airport. The percentage of respondents that have indicated severely, moderately crowded has gone up from 2021 to 2022. We, we, we note that's a, um, a difference that you know, I think is, is meaningful and is something we're very closely monitoring. We see a number of uh, that crowding as well, like the question about uh, how crowded airport terminals seem to customers. Airports are, uh, airport customers, airport passengers are indicating that the terminals seem to them to be more crowded. Looking at some things beyond just crowding, we see inflationary tendencies and surge pricing and, and the like in airports. Uh, the number of uh, respondents that are indicating that parking fees versus expectations seem more expensive has gone up between 2021 and 2022. Uh, we see this at you know, food and beverage and concessions like the reason people people indicating that they didn't purchase because things seem too expensive that has gone up so you know those are some of the overarching considerations so there's some of the reasons some of the things that we see coming out of the study and some of the reasons customers are indicating that passengers are indicating that you know things are different between study year 2022 and study year 2021 jonathan is what consumers want and expect from airports? Has, has that changed significantly since the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the consumers are saying that, again, they're, they expect to have a, um, you know, an experience throughout the airport that, again, meets their expectations and is consistent with, I think, a seamless flow through the airport. The crowding and some of the overarching considerations that we noted before are impacting that experience, and that's why they're responding um, with, I think, that over those overall um, lower satisfaction scores. I will note, you know, one of the additional ways we're getting at satisfaction levels of airline customers and and figuring out what's moving the needle. We've implemented, in addition to the syndicated study, we've implemented in the moment um, surveying at at two American hubs, one Delta hub, 
and two of the largest OND airports in the United States. We're going to announce a sixth airport very soon. That gives us the ability to get at what's moving the needle with consumers, um, with passengers, while they're in the moment in the airport. So generally, it's when it's they're they're logging onto Wi-Fi, they're using their mobile device or their laptop. It's usually after they've created their boarding pass, after they've checked a bag, if, they, if they're going to do that, after they've gone through the security checkpoint. But you know, it could be at the checkpoint. It could be any of those touch points. We're actually asking them in the moment what's driving their satisfaction, how they feel. I mean, it's airports or other constituencies can ask any questions they want, and we're asking those questions and running A/B testing. You know, as an example, mega airport, we're we're collecting feedback from over a million passengers a year. So airports can you know ask something at seven a.m. by by lunchtime, they have over five thousand responses. So to get at the question you were asking, you know, we're seeing different things. We're, we're seeing many different issues come up that customers are, are providing feedback about. The dynamic nature of what we're doing means that we can ask any and all questions. So in Syndicated, we have a specific set of questions. You know, what we're doing in the moment with techno- leveraging technology, we can ask any and all questions. We can be running A-B testing and trying to figure out what is moving the needle, trying to figure out, you know, how, how does an airport make a decision on a dime? and maximize non-aeronautical revenue, make decisions that meet customer needs. And this, this goes across the board, the travel vertical, it could be a hotel or air, airline, um, you know, getting at those issues, I think is critically important in the current environment. The questions are different for each airport because they can ask any questions they want, but we are absolutely seeing shifting expectations. And um, you know, it's, it's actually really exciting to look at the data and be able to work with the airports to change questions up, you know, constantly to, to get at what's moving the needle with passengers, um, you know, as they inter- interact with technology, as they interact with touch points. Well, but we're here to talk about the airport awards. So tell us who won, Jonathan. Absolutely. So this is really exciting. You know, airports, you know, I think compete vigorously to enhance the passenger experience. You know, there are a number of airports that engage with us extensively through the year to, to look at the data and see what moves the needle in terms of satisfaction. Um, in the mega category, the winner is uh, Minneapolis. That is a, a different winner than study year 2021. And congratulations to Minneapolis for that achievement. Uh, Tampa is the winner in the large category. That's also a different winner than study year 2021. Um, Tampa actually had the highest score of any airport in the study. And then in the medium category it was Indianapolis. That is a, uh, again, it's, it's, it's something that's incredibly sought after in the, in the marketplace to lead their, their segment in terms of meeting passenger expectations in those areas that are most important to passengers. Um, you know, we, we see that airports are, are excited about that. We're really excited about that. And um, we, we love engaging with the different constituencies in the airport ecosystem to, to engage with winners and help them figure out what caused the win and how they continue to, to, to excel and work with other airports to figure out what they can do to move the needle to enhance the experience of their passengers and perform it as, as, um, at a high, as high level as possible. Did you see any commonalities across these three airports in particular with regard to why they're best in class and what they do well? You know, from, from, the, from the statistical standpoint, what we're doing is all of these airports are doing the things best that are most important to their constituencies. So those airports that win are doing the things that are, again, most important. We looked at, we talked about the six factors before. Some of these airports lead in more factors than, than others. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when, when an airport asks us, well, what do we have to do to win? 
you know, it, it, it's it's doing, you know, looking at those factors and looking at the what we call attributes, which are elements that roll up to the factors, doing the things that are most important. You look at the data, figure out what does the passenger base say is most important and do those things and do those things well. And, and what we advocate is looking at benchmarks, not only within the airport environment, but across industries. What are leading companies, those that meet customer expectations best, what are they doing? Implement those, those benchmarks, bring it across industries, look at, again, what's moving the needle, what's most important based on the regression weights, and, and excel at those things. So, you know, to get at your question, you know, they are looking at the checkpoint. They are looking at baggage check. They're looking again at the, at the different elements and they are um, meeting expectations. You know, I look at, you know, the weights, you know, and, and, you know, at terminal facilities as an example, making sure those terminal facilities are built out in the way that are, are market leading and are, um, you know, that, that again, meet, meet the needs of consumers. Um, that, that's incredibly important. Um, you know, we saw like last year as an example, when, when um, New Orleans won, in 2021, you know, they had just, they had built a new terminal and they had thought through how do we meet expectations? You know, and, and if we look at Minneapolis, Tampa, and Indianapolis, they've all made very deliberate decisions in building out their infrastructure and, and um, you know, it shows in, in what the data is saying. More with Jonathan in a moment, but first, a thanks to Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company. This specialty finance and investment banking firm boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. So Jonathan, being an airline guy, I think of airports as our landlords in some way. The point is that airports serve the end customer, they also serve the airlines. Now, I know J.D. Power exists to provide value to the end customer, but what do you think the airlines themselves can learn from these airport awards? Absolutely. So the I think airlines, when we talk about any of our studies and what somebody in one industry can learn from another industry, you can look at the overall normalized score and, and try and say, okay, this is an airport um, or this is an airline or whatever the constituency might be, and they've, they've excelled. And you can look at what best practices they're implementing. Um, and you can look at how they're meeting the needs. And there is certainly overlap. When we look at airlines and airports, there are certainly overlap, overlapping parts of the experience that airlines would look at to say, okay, what is this airport doing to meet the needs of those customers that are also then boarding our planes? Um, so, you know, how, how airports have built out their, their um, you know, the airport environment and how they're working with terminal facilities and how they're working with F&B and retail. I mean, certainly there's commonality between serving uh, on the ground at an airport with F&B and what an airline might do in the air, as well as, as um, you know, arrival and departure and, and, and baggage claim, et cetera. But, you know, again, we are, J.D. Power is about voice of the customer across industry, and we're measuring that voice of the customer, and we're measuring for best practices across industries. And we strongly believe, you know, when an airline is looking at what an airport and an airport customer, um, what causes that satisfaction, an airport customer doesn't just look at 
necessary at their experience at other airports. They're looking across industries and how leading organizations are meeting expectations, you know, because they're engaging with retail concessions and they're engaging with different parts of the experience that the expectations are set, not just by what happens at another airport. That's where we bring to bear all these cross-industry benchmarks. And that's where I think an airline can learn from that, from those cross-industry benchmarks, can learn from what an airport does, you know, to to excel, to meet and exceed um, passenger expectations. And, you know, an airport as well, when they make decisions about what airports to serve, they are they're making decisions in part. And obviously there are overarching considerations about a route, you know, demand within an OD, um, you know, other considerations, but also meeting and exceeding the passenger's experience is important to an airline when making decisions if they have multiple hubs, where to add capacity or, you know, what what spoke cities to, to be adding capacity to. That's important. And so airlines pay attention to that. And we, we would advocate that that's really an, an important part of the decision-making process for, for an airline. So Jonathan, a two-part follow-up to that specific point. And I'm not trying to pit airports against airlines, but which of those two sectors does a better job at customer satisfaction? And then what are the things that airports can learn from airlines and airlines from airports with regard to kind of building a better guest satisfaction experience across airports and airlines? So, so the index models are different. You know, I, I, I would shy away from taking an index model score um, based on the regression modeling and say, and just comparing it one versus another. I would actually, again, compare best practices. We have um, KPIs, we have these um, indications of, because we run an index model and create a, a score, we can then create a use a binary um, instance of, of of yes or no where something did or didn't occur. So again, it's binary; it's yes or no, and figure out what the what the difference is, what the delta is in the index score to figure out what the impact, the prevalence and impact is of something occurring. And I think looking at those KPIs, you know, we, we look at some of the things that are most that have the biggest impact on, on KPI, like signage and gate area comfort, and and you know these these big issues. And, you know, airlines can be looking at those things and saying, okay, what do we take away from the fact that this is most important for an airport customer? Because they're going to the airport and then they're boarding the plane. So they need to be thinking about those things and what is most important to an airport customer to satisfy the airline customer and vice versa. You know, the, the airline customer, we, we, we spoke on the last podcast about what was moving the needle for airline customers. And, you know, we, we talked about middle seat blocking occurring in study year 2021 and, and, you know, again, crowds and what leading stakeholders, what leading airlines were doing to, to pivot and, and meet, uh, meet the needs of customers in a changing environment where the mix of travelers was changing and, and where, um, you know, again, passenger level volumes are different. And again, airports can be looking at what leading airlines are doing. Look, look at the study winners, um, what they did in the first um, premium economy and economy segment. And, you know, again, pivoting for the expectations that the weights are different in each of those three classifications. Look, you know, based on the kind of customers, you you have a, a different a different game plan. And, you know, it's, it, when you look at an airline, you know, they're 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 working differently with first class customers than they are with economy customers. I think you can make a comparison to an airport. You've got you know maybe some business travelers or some passengers that may have higher different kinds of expectations in your lounges and some of the facilities you've built out. 
So you can take some of those practices, for instance, at first class and maybe apply them to a lounge um, or maybe apply, you know, you can look at the correlation of, you know, who who's sitting in first class versus where they might be in the airport and take some of that data and try to try to apply it across industries, if you will. Well, that's very helpful, Jonathan. You know, J.D. Power has provided great insight to customers who travel, and you've educated us on this show about the airline and now the airport awards. Tell us what else J.D. Power does in the travel space. Sure. So we are working across the board with a number of travel companies. So as I mentioned before, I manage a travel vertical, which includes airlines, airports, hotels, and car rental companies. And we're engaging extensively so that, you know, an individual brand knows or an individual airport knows what's driving satisfaction, again, within the travel ecosystem and beyond. Well, this has been great, Jonathan, and we want to congratulate Minneapolis, Tampa, and Indianapolis for their wins. Jonathan, when the next big travel award's ready to be released, we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Ben, Chris, thank you. Thank you for the, for the service you're doing to our industry, um, to the many listeners um, providing that content to our industry. Great to talk to you, Jonathan. Thanks again for joining us. Stay tuned for more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Jonathan Sutter. He took our questions, and now we'll take yours. Please keep your questions coming in via email at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Ben, our mailbag this week was full of listener comments uh, about some previous shows. So we're going to give them some airtime and let us react. And as they should be doing, uh, they've been keeping us honest, pointing out when we're wrong or correcting some of the the observations of our guests. Uh, Let's start with Abby Shaw. He's the chief revenue officer at Azul. And he wrote us, Hey, Ben and Chris, Loved your discussion on Brazil and Latin America, and thanks for the kind words about Azul. I've worked with David and John, the CEO, since JetBlue days. I just wanted to point out that the Airbus 350 is actually the 12th wide body in our fleet right now, and we've been flying wide body routes since 2014. More importantly, though, we'd love to chat with you guys online or offline about how we've made this part of our business work and will remain true to our overall strategy. Love the podcast. And hopefully talk soon. Well, this is a great note. And Abby, you'd be welcome to come on the show because we'd love to talk to you about how an airline like Azul integrates a wide body airplane into a narrow body fleet and finds a way to make it work without distracting the whole company. And you've obviously been able to do that. And I bet you could teach a lot of airlines around the world that are maybe around Azul's side the best way to think about that strategy challenge. And then Gerard from Baltimore wrote, in a recent episode, you mentioned that Iceland-based Play Airlines was initiating flights out of Washington, Dulles, and you were surprised that they chose Dulles over BWI. Play Airlines has actually been flying out of BWI for several months. 
My concern is can Play maintain service from two airports in the Baltimore-Washington metro region at the same time? Love your show. I really appreciated this update, too. So thank you, Gerard. And I didn't realize that Play had already started service to Baltimore. When Wow Airlines was flying, their service to Baltimore was one service that always worked very well for them when flown with the A321, of course. So when I saw them go into Dallas, I guess I just... Um, maybe obnoxiously just assume, well, why they must not be in Baltimore because why would they be doing Dallas and why would they have charged this? So I share the same concern as you. Although for some travelers, Baltimore and Dallas are competitive in a sense in terms of there are certain geographies in the greater Washington region where you could reasonably drive or get ride share to either airport. Maybe one's a little closer than the other, but both are. But they also have some unique geography. The geography north of Baltimore, like South Philly and Delaware and things like that, isn't reasonably gonna go all the way to Dulles. On the other side, many towns in sort of Western Virginia and even places like Richmond and things, which probably do use Dulles today for nonstop long haul travel, aren't likely to go all the way to Baltimore. So I actually think it might be a smart strategy of play to think about some capacity into both Dulles and BWI or BWI as a way to serve all of the greater Washington region in a broad sense. But I agree with you. It's possible that they may find one of these works much better than the other and they consolidate all their flights in one of the two airports. It's something we're going to have to watch, but great comment, Gerard. Thank you. And note to Gerard and Abby, I knew Ben was wrong all along. I just didn't want to correct him. Uh, so <laughs> I just, just, I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> just, just, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and then we got a note from Brianna from Boise, who had a good comment about our discussion with Eric Sebastian from the RTAG organization. Hey, gents, Eric needs to understand that from a business perspective, quote, free government money is never free. I'm not saying that the companies can't be myopic and prone to inertia because they most certainly can. Maybe RTAG has indeed hit upon the secret airline pilot generating sauce and the airlines can't see it. On the other hand, maybe the airlines have done the analysis and concluded that these particular government dollars won't generate profits for the airline shareholders. As a Navy mom, I thank Eric for his service and appreciate all he does for veterans. I hope he takes this criticism and the loving, been there, done that spirit I intended to be. I made a lot of mistakes when I was starting out as a lobbyist and trying to sell an idea. Until you understand your audience's pain points as well as you understand your solutions, you're basically talking to yourself. I think this is a great comment from Brianna, and thank you. Obviously, you're technically right that there's no such thing as free government money. Someone pays for it. I think Eric's point, to maybe be a bit defensive of him, is this money is available to veterans now through existing programs, so why wouldn't the airline industry choose a way to benefit from that? I think 
think what he was saying is it's not that the government is now paying airlines when they other, otherwise wouldn't, but the government does support our veterans in a number of ways. And what he seems to have figured out is ways to use that money to help them train into airline roles. So I think you're right that he has to understand the audience pain points. But I can tell you, if the airlines are audiences and they're looking to find new pipelines of pilots, mechanics, and others, and our tag can help them see how veterans can play a bigger role in that, I think what he's doing is very aligned with what his audience wants. Yeah. I mean, Brianna makes some good points. And, um, you know, sometimes in your passion for your cause, you can get out in front of yourself. And uh, Eric is certainly passionate and uh, a very strong advocate for Artag. But the airlines are putting up some money here, so they must see that there's there's something there. Whether they're all in or they're in enough to make a difference is to be seen. But they're they seem to be coming around to partnering with Artag, and uh, at this point, we need every available resource to get pilots in the cockpit. I think that's right, and you know. Starting a number of years ago, most airlines started their own ab initio programs to train pilots, but those are only starting to come online and they're still years away from putting out meaningful numbers of pilots each year. And so if our tag finds a way to supplement, especially over the next three to five years, what better thing than getting people who've served our country a great new career opportunity in the commercial airline business? Well, as we get ready to shut it down, let's make sure we give our thanks to our friends at Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines an unmatched depth of experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. And then I'd like to give my shout out this week to actress Marley Matlin. She's a big Delta Airlines fan, but she's finally had enough and taken to social media to take Delta to task for the lousy job of closed captioning of in-flight entertainment so that it's more accessible to the hearing impaired. I thought Delta was further along than this. So good on you, Marley, for calling it out. And Delta, let's step it up. I think that's exactly right. Chris, I don't know which airlines do provide good closed captioning and which don't, but it's something I'll research. And then we should decide whether Delta will be a leader here or whether they're a laggard. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Well, my shout out goes to the Star Alliance. The Star Alliance has put out a charge to roughly half of its 26 members to incorporate biometric technology by 2025. That's a very near date. That's different than sort of you know, net neutrality by 2050. That's just a couple of years. But they're saying that the ability to reduce processing time through airport security, a baggage drop, departure gates and lounges and things can work better with biometrics. 
airlines have done their own things. There's companies like Clear who provide off-the-shelf solutions and lots of others. So Star Alliance is saying we're an alliance that's going to build on biometric technology. As far as I know, no other airline or certainly a, an alliance has put out a target like that. So my shout out goes to them for sort of putting that challenge out, how they're going to track it and what exactly Exactly, they expect each airline to do. I'm not sure of, but I really like the intent behind this. Agreed. So, with that, this show's in the can. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.